swiftly then. Tadeusz Mertz is research focused professor of philosophy here at the University of Johannesburg. He is the author of more than 100 scholarly journal articles, book chapters, and encyclopedia entries on a variety of topics in ethical, political, and legal philosophy. His book, Meaning in Life, an Analytics Study, appeared last year with Oxford University Press in the UK, and he is currently on sabbatical at work on another book tentatively entitled An African Moral Theory, Ethics as Relational. Some recent publications of his include A Theory of National Reconciliation, Dignity in the Ubuntu Tradition, on Human Dignity, African Values, Human Rights, and Group Rights. He is our respondent tonight, and I call upon him now and ask you to join me in welcoming him to the podium. start by saying I was a little worried uh, when the conveners of this uh, gathering asked me to respond to Professor Beckles. Uh, as you've heard, I'm a philosopher and one based in South Africa. Uh, and here we have a historian uh, who has uh, uh, written extensively and given us an interesting discussion this evening about the Caribbean. Uh, I was particularly worried uh, because of what he says pretty early on in his book, on page four. He says uh, he had taken some philosophy classes, but, quote, my affinity for philosophy classes was short-lived. The absence of historical dimensions did little for me. <laughs> and so I thought, my goodness, I'm in trouble. Um, however, I was happy to hear that at least on two occasions during his talk this evening, uh, he welcomed uh, philosophical input. Uh, I'm a philosopher, so by God, we're going to do some philosophy tonight. Um, and I'm hoping that it's going to complement uh, uh, the rich historical uh, and more uh, discussion and moral exhortations uh, from Professor Beckles this evening. What I want to focus on uh, are some of the arguments in his latest book that's been uh, uh, mentioned now, Britain's Black Debt. I've read through it with an eye to looking for underlying rationales for reparations. During the lecture, Professor Beckles said that reparations are indispensable. And my question this evening is why precisely should we think so? It's true that there's good grounds in international law for uh, reparative justice, but why should the law recognize that approach? The bulk of uh, Professor Beckles' discussion this evening took up systematically some very bad arguments against reparations, uh, uh, particularly uh, as voiced by uh, some salient European governments and leaders. I, in contrast, want to focus on what good reasons there are for taking a reparative paradigm seriously. 
And I'm going to do that uh, to some degree in a South African context, given that I've been living here since 1998 and my audience is primarily South African. I identify three different rationales for reparations that you can find salient in South African discussions about the history of colonialism and apartheid. And I also find the three rationales for reparations uh, implicit and sometimes explicit in Professor Beckel's book. I'm going to work through them and suggest that the first two are incomplete, although the most common ones you'll find not only in the book but in South African discourse. And I'm going to push uh, for a third, somewhat underexplored uh, perspective that I think deserves more attention. So what are these three different rationales we might have for a compensatory paradigm? For thinking roughly that uh, black people in South Africa and elsewhere are entitled to compensation from some white people. The first argument or the first rationale for reparations is what we might call a fair, an appeal to a fair distribution of benefits and burdens. It's roughly the idea that when there's been a wrongdoing committed and when the wrongdoer has benefited and the victim has been harmed, uh, reparations are called for to equalize, right? to remove the unjustly gotten benefit uh, and to repair uh, the harm that was unjustly suffered on the part of the victim. It's a very straightforward uh, standard approach to reparations. If I have a motorbike and you come and steal my motorbike, uh, you're now in position of a benefit that I've lost out and it would seem very straightforward to say that you should give me my motorbike back. <laughs> okay. Less glibly, less glibly uh, we can find this kind of rationale for wanting to, to, make, uh, uh, to uh, generate a fair distribution of benefits and burdens in much of the discussion this evening from Professor Beckles. Implicitly, there's been the appeal to the idea that the UK in particular has benefited from the history of slavery while uh, uh, slaves themselves and their descendants continue to suffer harm as a result of that wrongdoing. In the book, uh, he says specifically on page 171, the descendants of the enslaved have a legal right to, repar repar to reparations from the beneficiaries of those criminally enriched. The causal and immediate impact upon Caribbean persons is evident. The mass poverty in towns and villages, widespread illiteracy, dysfunctional family structures, rampant ill health are contemporary expressions of the horrors of slavery that targeted black persons. I think this argument is perfectly fine so far as it goes. I just want to suggest that it's incomplete. It isn't the whole story about what would ground a claim to reparations. Return to that very simple motorbike case I suggested. Suppose you've taken my motorbike, but you're not very good at riding them and you crash. It won't do for you to go to court and say, look, Your Honor, I didn't benefit unjustly from the taking of Metz's <laughs> motorbike. In fact, I'm worse off now for having taken it because now I'm injured and I'm missing a limb or what have you. Right? It's not a good defense. Right? Equally so, it wouldn't be a, a good defense if somehow, by virtue of the theft, I turned out as the victim to be better off than I would have been otherwise. That is, suppose concretely, that I too were a very bad motorcyclist. And had I stayed in possession of the motorbike, I would have crashed. So suppose you, by taking the motorbike, have actually improved my situation. 
I haven't suffered a crash because you've now got the motorbike. Again, it won't do for you to go to court and say, look, Your Honor, I, look at the results. Uh, Metz isn't any worse off. In fact, he's better off for me taking the bike. I don't have to give the bike back. Right? Those are ridiculous responses. They should sound ridiculous. They're not ridiculous, though, if the sole basis for reparations is a prescription to distribute a fair distribution of benefits and burdens. Indeed, you'll find parallel somewhat quote-unquote ridiculous responses in South African discourse about reparations. For example, uh, an unfortunate fact is my colleague Professor Benatar in the philosophy department at UCT has argued that uh, apartheid actually didn't benefit the white community. They would have been better off, he says, uh, had there not been apartheid. Had, for example, they not suffered from sanctions and isolation, and had there been the sort of economic opportunities and the substantial increase in economic demand that came with freedom. Conversely, we find other white conservatives saying things like, uh, the black economy would have been worse without apartheid. And here you get some very armchair uh, uh, economic analysis uh, suggesting that we look at the effects of colonialism below the Sahara Desert, and often white conservatives will say, well, look at Ethiopia, which wasn't colonized, uh, and now has uh, the lowest per capita income uh, below the Sahara Desert of about $260 uh, 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 per person. And then you compare that with South Africa, which had some kind of colonialism in the form of apartheid up until the 1990s, and it has the greatest uh, uh, per capita income of well over 11,000 uh, US dollars per person. Now you should find these, I find these kinds of arguments annoying. <laughs> but they're appropriate to make in a context where you think the only ground for reparations is that the wrongdoer has benefited and the victim has been harmed. Then we need to get into some, some very nitty-gritty empirical details about the extent of the benefit and harm, if there was any. This suggests to me we haven't cottoned on to really the key claim, the key rationale for reparations. Here's a second rationale one that we might call an appeal to restoring an original state. Sometimes people say that reparations are justified as a way of returning to the state in which things would have been absent the injustice. And again, we find this kind of rationale in Professor Beckel's book on page 13, where he speaks of reestablishing the situation that would in all probability have existed if the act had not been committed and returning the victim to a condition that preceded the illegal act. This kind of principle, again, gets bandied about quite a lot here in South Africa. Here are two problems with it. Sometimes white folks say, in response to this argument, well, look, uh, if the English or the Dutch or the French hadn't come, you know the Portuguese or the Germans would have, and they would have been worse, <laughs> or at least no better. <laughs> or the Chinese. So if we're to look at what would have happened had we not done this, the same thing or worse would have happened, and so we don't owe anything. Sometimes you get that. Right? On the other hand, sometimes you get the point that, well, okay, if we need to return things to an original state, uh, 
then it looks like uh, uh, Ubuntu speakers uh, came here and kicked out the Khoisan. So if we're really going to return things to an original state, uh, the land shouldn't go to uh, Bantu speakers. Rather, it should go to the Khoisan peoples. Again, you should be irritated by these responses. <laughs> At least I am. Um, but they make sense given the suggestion that reparations would be based solely, oh, justified solely as a way to return things to the way they would have been in the absence of a particular act. What's the third argument for reparations? The one that I find more promising, the one I think that actually cuts to the heart of things. That uh, uh, I think it has to do with reconciliation, which Professor Beckles emphasized towards the end of his talk. And he also discusses in his book on pages 16 and 17 in particular. He says, there must be acknowledgement of the crime, an apology for the perpetrating of the crime, acceptance of responsibility, and a willingness to begin a reparatory process. He also discusses in the book the distinction between apology and regret, which he discussed this evening. So what is reconciliation? Well, I'm not going to get into you a big long story about that, but I presume it's got two major elements. On the one hand, you've got formerly opposed people who come together and then cooperate and engage in some kind of mutual aid. That's one thing. But the other part of reconciliation, or a desirable kind of reconciliation, would be a disavowal of the injustice, would be the offenders or those associated with them, complicit with them, taking responsibility for the wrongdoing, apologizing for it, listening to victims, and above all, putting their money where their mouth is. Actions speak louder than words. And so if people are truly sorry, truly contrite, truly committed to expressing uh, the, their attitude that they'll never do this sort of thing again, then they ought to give up some hard-earned currency or labor or other kind of resource that would be substantial. This kind of rationale for reparations avoids the problems of the earlier ones. <coughs> we don't need to get into any precise calculations of the benefits that wrongdoers may have gained and the uh, burdens that victims may have suffered. Right? Instead, there needs to be some expression of remorse, which is done by virtue of offering some kind of reparation, something concrete, perhaps uh, a voluntary tax Right, on the white community, the white community, churches, uh, businesses, uh, uh, civic organizations coming together and deciding, look, let's give 3% of this year's income to townships. Right? There's no way that would make up for the amount of harm that apartheid did, but it would be the sort of reparative gesture that would probably foster or help to foster reconciliation. I'd similarly like to see Afroforum, uh, instead of doing what it normally does, uh, I'd like to see it training uh, black farmers and donating uh, large chunks of farmland to people who have the demonstrable ability to make use of it. Okay. Notice as well that we don't need to engage in any sort of tricky counterfactual analysis about what would have happened in the absence of apartheid or colonialists. All we need to do is say, look, uh, white community in South Africa, you were the ones uh, largely responsible for the wrongdoing. And so regardless of what would have happened in the absence of that, you're the one who needs to apologize and make reparations as a way of making the apology good. 
Professor Beckles did mention this rationale. I think it's distinct from the first two and should probably be of more focus. I think it gives us the right sort of answers to at least the South African context. Uh, you might notice that uh, I don't need to do as much history to apply this analysis. It's more philosophical in a sense, and so I, I may have uh, cheated in a way. But I didn't mean to suggest that the reconciliation-based rationale for reparations should supplant the other two rationales that we find in Professor Beckel's book. I rather wanted to suggest that it should supplement them. Thank you.